Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Reading from John 8, 31 to 36. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so the biblical picture of sin is that it is enslaving. It's deadly. And the biblical picture of salvation is freedom, deliverance from this slavery. I think this describes the movement of the Bible from Genesis. You know, the first couple imagined they would have freedom if they sinned. But of course, what they had was shame and fear and death. And things get worse from there with each generation from Noah to Babel. And the story of the Jews that, you know, they imagine, oh, we are a free people. We're the children of Abraham. And yet, of course, their story literally is that they were enslaved in Egypt. But of course, spiritually, Jesus says, well, you're still slaves because you're subject to sin. And so this biblical picture culminates in the freedom the true freedom offered in Christ. And this biblical sensibility is certainly not that which I think our culture presents to us. The last two weeks we have been talking about the point of Jesus' statement in John 10, 34. He quotes the psalm, you are gods. And we concluded that it would be summed up in the term theosis or in being filled with the Holy Spirit or being in Christ. That is the explanation of theosis, of what Jesus is saying, is really just the New Testament doctrine of salvation. As Peter says that as Christians you're partakers of the divine nature. And so we participate, we're to be in union with God and this is freedom. The yeast that is integrated, you know, that leavens the whole lump, well, ultimately, I think that's divine. The union between a husband and wife that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, he says that is illustrative or that it's true of the human and divine union. As Irenaeus puts it, for it was for this end that the word of God was made man And he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, that man, having been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. There's the movement of history. There's the movement of fall and salvation. Athanasius put it even more succinctly. He said, He became man that we might become God. 
to be God. You know, that sound, that may strike us slightly wrong. Maybe it sounds demonic. That's what Jesus' contemporaries thought. It says in John 10, 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Isn't this demon talk? Isn't this kind of the opposite of what we're supposed to be, you know, almost the, the near reduplication of the serpent's temptation in Genesis? You'll be like God's. I think the opposite of biblical deification, biblical salvation, I think it's not what we moderns imagine, you know, this post-Nietzsche world when we hear, you are gods. That is, we might think the satanic version is simply to say the same thing again, maybe differently. The statement may conjure up images of kind of a superman or a, a, a free, autonomous individual, the captain of his own soul, as if there is such a thing. Someone turning out values and determining his world. And we may imagine a kind of irreligion or atheism which gains freedom and power in throwing off all belief. Even in the negative assessment. You know, we say, oh, that can't be right. But we say something like, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. And this supposed quote, you know, of Dostoevsky, I think the, the mistake behind it is that it imagines that there is a kind of potency or freedom, even if it's a hedonistic kind of freedom, to disbelieve. Whether it's the positive atheistic guys, you know, that Nietzsche talks about, we can wipe the world clean, we can recreate our value system, or whether it's this kind of negative ideological understanding, I think we might make a mistake and posit a presumed freedom, maybe it's liberating, maybe it's dangerous, when in fact enslavement is the characteristic form of the human condition. In being God, you know, small g, and displacing God, big G, I think in this misunderstood kind of demonization, there is a presumed empowerment that is just fundamentally mistaken. And I think we all know it's mistaken. This was Lacan's formula I told you about. If God is dead, he says nothing is permitted. And of course what Lacan is talking about, he's a psychiatrist. He's working in a clinic. He's referring to people that he meets. They're sick. They're twisted. They're ill, mentally ill. People kill themselves at almost the same rate that they kill one another. People live under deadly constraints. So that very often in people's lives, self-destruction is the only option. Maybe violence just seems to be a necessity. And I'm quoting this at the end here. I'm going to quote the early church fathers. This is exactly what they're describing. The world that they live in. It sounds like our world. They say that every man, you know, he's afraid not to have his weapon with him all the time. There's random violence. There's religious violence. There's political violence. Maybe there's entertaining violence. But violence is just the thing that orders many people's lives. Or maybe it's not an overt physical violence, but simply a description of the life of the individual in their own thoughts. 
You know, they're kind of have a sick conscience and their own conscience takes delight in torturing them. And any pleasure had in the sickness involves their ongoing suffering, that they have intrusive thoughts and they're like marionettes. They're just controlled by their own sickness. And of course, the more pain and the more satisfaction and it's just a self-destructive cycle. And maybe the source of the sickness, the source, you know, the voice, the conscience, maybe it's religious, maybe it's not. I don't think it really matters. The hedonist command, enjoy, is as deadly as the puritanical command to abstain from enjoyment. The command to sacrifice, maybe it comes from the gods, or like with son of Sam, it may be coming from the neighbor's dog. The sacrifice, you know, maybe the sacrifice of the firstborn, the sacrifice of a soldier, or just maybe the pedophiles, child sacrifice. That is that people are sick and enslaved. The human problem is not too much freedom, but the lack of freedom. And of course, what we're really describing, the lack of agency. The gods they serve, whether personal or corporate, hedonistic or puritanical, demand constant vigilance, constant sacrifice. And human life, I think, is mostly spent in futile servitude to what is non-existent. The idols are nothing. Though Nietzsche railed against, he talked about Christianity, oh, that's a slave's religion. But he too succumbed to mental enslavement. He ended his life a broken man. The fact that his mental break came at the sight, you know, the sight of a man beating a horse indicates it was not freedom, but human cruelty and evil. Maybe the cruelty that he inflicted upon himself, which he could not endure. The ubermensch, the, the superman, turns out to be a pitiful wreck. And I think we live in the wake of that presumed freedom. We live in the wake of the idea that Oh, we can grab that freedom. And of course, what the reality is that the enslavement has become even heavier. And don't get confused here. We're not talking about religion or irreligion or atheism versus theism. In fact, I think one way of characterizing Jesus' statement when he says, you are God and the faith of the New Testament let me say this, and I, say, I know this isn't quite right, but it's almost a form of irreligion. That is, the Romans presumed Christians were atheists because they refused to worship the Roman gods. And what Jesus means when he says that he will set us free with the truth is that most people are enslaved by the falsehood of religion. I think he means that to the Pharisees that he's talking to. Both Judaism and Christianity are characterized by the rejection of religion. Idolatrous religion, right? The only form of religion that much of the world knows. But Jesus' statement, you are God's, gets at the fact that idolatry per se is not the root of the human problem. 
You know, that's what the Jews say. Oh, he's guilty himself of irreligion. The Jews accused Jesus of the worst form of irreligious blasphemy in claiming equality with God. But what Jesus is doing in creating, you know, that whole passage is about the sons of God, is returning human agency, human freedom, human responsibility. Humans are enslaved. We're enslaved by a, a deadly orientation to the law, to lust. Paul characterizes it as an orientation to the law in which the Jewish law, I think, is only a particular instance of the universal problem. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God in the same way. And the Jews are an example. His point to the Judaizers in Galatia is that a return to Judaism is the equivalent of a return to idolatry. The weight of the law, you know, maybe it's felt as inclusion, exclusion. Paul refers to it, the wall of hostility. But I think that's not just a Jewish problem. It's a religious problem. It's the universal problem of suffering under the hostile condemnation of law. What law? Well, I think the law of sin and death. To imagine God is doing the condemning, you know, just look at the case of Jesus. Does he die because God's condemning him or because sinful men are condemning him? Because the powers of Jerusalem, of Rome, are doing the torturing and killing of Christ. They kill him for their religion, for Roman religion, for Jewish religion. They kill him as a result of their enslavement. The killing of Jesus revolving around his claim to deity, I think that marks the source of the problem and the victim. The necessity to kill Jesus is a result of their law, of their gods. In Roman religion and Jewish religion, God incarnate must be killed. Dostoevsky has a scene in the Brothers Karamazov, and the atheistic brother says, well, you see, Jesus, if he comes back, let's say he comes back to Seville, Spain, during the Inquisition. And so he tells this story. And so after healing the sick and raising the dead, the Inquisitor, the Grand Inquisitor, has Jesus arrested. And that evening he visits his cell and he explains to Jesus why in the morning they're going to burn him at the stake. Where Jesus had resisted the temptation in the wilderness. He says it's precisely those temptations which the Roman church has utilized to steal human freedom. The church will offer bread in exchange for worship. He says give man bread and he will bow down to you for there is nothing more indisputable than bread. But if at the same time someone else takes over his conscience, oh, then he will even throw down your bread and follow him who has seduced his conscience. That is, man is eager to be enslaved. And the Roman church in Dostoevsky's story does the job. The inquisitor explains to Jesus that his main mistake was to imagine that there were others like him. 
able to bear the weight of deity and freedom. He says, in refusing the miracle of leaping off the temple, you wrongly presume there are many like you. But you did not know that as soon as man rejects miracles, he will also at once reject God as well. For man seeks not so much God as miracles. And then the inquisitor explains that Jesus has expected too much of people. And luckily, the church has stepped in where Jesus failed. But now that Jesus has shown up, he must be silenced, lest he presume to speak and interfere with the established religion of the church. They have a perfectly good system. Everything has been handed over to the church and now belongs to the Pope. He says, you may as well not come at all now. Or at least don't interfere with us for the time being. The picture is the weight of freedom. The weight of responsibility is too much. So that enslavement to religion, to gods, to human hierarchy is the price that most are willing to pay. That is faced with the responsibility that Jesus places upon us. Better the self-binding enslavement of the common human condition. You know, that's the picture in Romans 7, this condemnation that we put upon ourselves. This is a human problem, not a God problem. To call it a legal problem may miss it. You know, this is Luther and Calvin. To simply say it is a problem with the law or internal to the law. That misses the point. The problem is a human problem. In those who imagine life, identity, salvation, and being are in the law. But this law may consist of corporate or individual dictates. It may be the Jewish law. It may be the corporate law of the Kara tribe in which the babies whose teeth come in on the top have to be killed. Or it may be an individual compulsion. It may be to destroy other people or it may be to destroy the self. What law is not the primary concern? And abolishing the law is not the primary concern. But I think suspending this enslavement to sin that the law cannot address, the law simply aggravates the problem. And maybe this is, you know, I've given you two things. The Lacanian idea, if God is dead, nothing is permitted. And the Dostoevskian, oh, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Maybe they just kind of fold into one another that nothing is permitted and everything is permitted. Maybe that's just two sides of the same coin. The law, individual or corporate, from God or from the individual. I think it touches upon a drive which knows no limits and yet it must be served to the death. To call this a religious or atheistic problem you know, in our present circumstance, I think is to miss that religionists and hedonists may serve the same God. Or should we imagine that Catholic and evangelical pedophiles and sex perverts, do they consist of a higher quality of perversion? The difference may be that the religious perverts, and we're surrounded by this, 
unlike the Harvey Weinsteins. Religious perverts, they have the corporate protection of the church. But who is more enslaved and degenerate? The lone individual driven to sexual violence under the obscene command to enjoy or an institution that produces and protects such people. In other words, slavery, enslavement, exists inside, outside the church, inside, outside religion. I don't know if you remember who Ted Haggard was. He was the president of the National Evangelical Association. He had a huge church, a mega church, and he was continually preaching against homosexuality. And then they discovered he was in the middle of a homosexual affair himself. And he went on Larry King Live, and this is what he said. He says, you know, Larry, Jesus says, I came for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. So as soon as I became a worldwide unrighteous person, I knew Jesus had come for me. Nothing is permitted, and thus everything is permitted. But the same oppressive force reigns on both sides of the law, on both sides of the coin. All of this to say the opposite of you are gods, the satanic version of you are gods, is to blind one to the source of life and freedom available in God and Christ. The inherent responsibility is you will be free and free indeed. It's a moral responsibility. And the satanic lure is bent on selling a kind of mediating knowledge, you know, the knowledge of good and evil. That results in hiding, shame, and fear, not freedom. And so the turn from God cannot be described as empowerment, even of the evil kind. It is not the attainment of agency and freedom, but the turn, you know, this is the story of Genesis, but this is the story of life, the turn to murder, mayhem, uncontrollable lust. Religion or irreligion may consist of the same punishing gods, the same punishing force. And the point of you are gods is to name the idol. Who makes the idol? Oh, you do. Who manufactures these gods? Well, you do. And this is in conclusion, in the context, the early church in which Athanasius, in which Irenaeus, they describe divinization or theosis, explaining Jesus' statement. In leading up to his succinct statement, remember he said that Athanasius says he became man, that man might become God. Athanasius says this, he notes that the barbarians of the present day are naturally savage in their habits. And as long as they sacrifice to their idols, they rage furiously against one another and cannot bear to be a single hour without their weapons. He describes a fearful and enslaved people. In fact, it sounds very modern. Who are subject to gods of their own making. But these are not deities that empower, but which enslave to warfare and violence. The turn to Christ and theosis is aimed at relieving humankind of its impotency and receiving freedom in the face of the demonic gods people have manufactured. He says, 
Quote, but when they hear the teaching of Christ forthwith, they turn from fighting to farming. I thought that was a wonderful phrase. And of course, he's describing the passage in Isaiah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And instead of arming themselves with swords, he says they extend their hands in prayer. In a word, instead of fighting each other, they take up arms against the devil and the demons and overcome them by their self-command and integrity of soul. By their self-command. That is, they regain agency. They gain self-command by putting off their worship of idols. And in that wonderful phrase, they turn from fighting to farming, from violence to creating and growing and creation care. They turn from enslavement to freedom. And then Irenaeus says a very similar thing in his explanation of you are gods. He points to the same impotency and enslavement. He says those who miss the deity of Christ and assert he was simply a mere man remain in the bondage of the old disobedience and are in a state of death having not been as yet joined to the word of God the Father nor receiving liberty through the Son as he does himself declare and then he quotes the passage that we read this morning if the Son shall make you free you shall be free indeed if they do not receive the incorruptible word he says they remain in mortal flesh and are debtors to death, not obtaining the antidote of life. They have the sickness of death, and the cure is life. Irenaeus references both John 10, where Jesus quotes Psalms 82, where it says, You are gods. He explains that those who despise the incarnation of the pure generation of the word of God they thus defraud human nature of promotion into God. By refusing the word of God, refusing participation in deity, they remain in the sickness of death. And this is a sickness. It's an illness. It's an enslavement. It's a subjection to the one who wields the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. That's option one. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's the only other option. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.